sackcloth and ashes are an old theme in the Old Testament. In fact, you've probably heard some preacher quote Second Chronicles 7.14, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. You've probably heard a preacher quote this verse as he exhorts the nation, America, to repent and return to God, and he will bless it. Unfortunately, this passage is often taken out of context, particularly as it relates to application. But I want to focus on that statement at the very beginning, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves. The act of humbling oneself in the Old Testament primarily was one of sackcloth and ashes. In fact, Ahab, one of the most evil kings in the nation of Israel, after hearing of God's coming judgment, it said that he tore his clothes he put on sackcloth and he fasted and he lay in sackcloth with the implication being potentially that he also included the ashes. The way a nation humbles itself is to put on sackcloth and ashes and to lay before God in true repentance with fasting and begging for the mercy of God. I believe this nation will ultimately decide its destiny and that choice will be couched in whether they will humble themselves and repent or whether they will not. We are studying faith for the final, surviving the coming days. And in this session, which is part five, we're going to continue our look at uh, the great verse in Matthew chapter 20, chapter 17, verse 20. He said to them, because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. This verse is taken from the ESV, the English Standard Version, and it is correctly translated, unlike the NASB, which is not. This, co this correct translation helps us to better understand what it is, uh, what the point uh, is that our Lord is making. Particularly, what point about faith is the Lord making in this particular verse. If, he says, as is translated in Matthew 17, 20, if, eon, which indicates a third class condition. He says, if you all have, it's plural, he's talking to all the disciples, if you all should have, uh, and this third class condition means that it is possible, it is possible for a person to meet the condition that the Lord Jesus will outline. If you all should have faith 
as, uh, the little word hos, as the seed, it says, of the mustard. Jesus says, if this condition is met, and it is possible, the potential exists for this to be a reality, then certain things can be expected. Now, the most interesting word here is this little word of, of two letters in the Greek, hos, H-O-S, the uh, backwards comma indicating that this, the sound is produced with an H, hos, it means like or as, and it indicates the presence of a simile, a figure of speech in Greek, which basically uh, the Lord Jesus uh, will use this particular simile uh, twice. That is the mustard seed simile. He will actually use it to explain the nature of the kingdom of God. And on a second occasion, he will use it to explain the nature of faith, which he will do twice. So it is an important uh, figure of speech that the Lord Jesus found most appropriate for explaining the nature of the kingdom of God and the nature of faith. The nature of the kingdom of God, he says in Mark chapter 4, verses 32-32, Jesus says, and he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Now here he's explaining something about the kingdom of God, and he uses the mustard seed as the uh, illustration. And he says that this is the nature of the kingdom of God. The nature of the kingdom of God is that it starts small and it ends big. This is the point that he makes with the simile of a grain of mustard. The nature of the kingdom of God is also explained in Daniel chapter 2, uh, beginning in verse 30 through 34 through 35, as Daniel is explaining the dream that King Nebuchadnezzar had concerning a statue and a stone. The text says, as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on his feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floor, he continues, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Now, it's interesting, he said, that a stone became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. In fact, the Hebrew here says a pebble, a very small stone, uh, 
turned into a mountain, and that mountain filled the very whole earth. This he explains later in Daniel chapter 2 at verse 44 and 45. Now he's explaining what he meant. He says, and in the days of those kings, the God of heaven was set up a kingdom. So the stone, the pebble that was cut out of the mountain, but not with human hands, is actually a kingdom. A kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. He says, it shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. And it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. What point is he making? He says it starts small, but it ends big. So the nature of the kingdom is explained by two illustrations. In Daniel, a pebble, a stone cut out of the mountain, grows and becomes a mountain itself and ultimately fills the whole earth and the Lord Jesus in the New Testament says the kingdom is like a grain of mustard seed that starts extremely small but grows and it ends big. This is the nature of the kingdom of God. And we see two illustrations that make this very important point. So back in Matthew chapter 17, 20, when the Lord Jesus says, For truly I say to you, if you have faith like or as a grain of mustard seed, you'll say to this mountain, move from here to there. Now, a simile, fundamentally, is a comparison by resemblance. There is a resemblance between two things, and that point of comparison is, in fact, the point of the simile. Now, a simile is the comparison of one thing or the statement that one thing is similar to another. And usually the point of the comparison is stated when you have a simile. Not all the time, but normally it is. That, of course, speaks to the very nature of a simile. A metaphor is distinct and different versus the simile. A metaphor uh, is different from a simile in this sense. Notice in this statement, the Lord is my shepherd. That's a metaphor. The Lord is like a shepherd is a simile. Now, what's the difference? Well, a metaphor is equating one thing is another thing. In this case, the Lord is my shepherd. So he is saying by using a metaphor that the Lord is everything a shepherd is. When you use a metaphor, you don't have to explain any particulars because you intend all of them, as you see in uh, Psalm 23, where David says, the Lord is my shepherd. And then he goes on to articulate seven or eight different things 
that the Lord does for him just as a shepherd does them for sheep. In a metaphor, you don't have to be explicit about what point of comparisons uh, you may be talking about, because by the very use of the metaphor, the reader knows that you intend every aspect, every defining trait, every characteristic of a shepherd you mean for the Lord. Now, this is very different in a simile. The Lord is like a shepherd. In this case, you're saying there is a similarity between the Lord and a shepherd. Now, typically, the author would go ahead and state what that point of comparison is. He does not mean that the Lord is a shepherd. He means that the Lord is similar to a shepherd in a very specific way. And normally, the text will actually tell you what point of comparison you are intending when a simile is used. Back in Matthew chapter, tw- uh, chapter 17, verse 20, we see that the size in the, new, in the NASB, because of that particular translation, the emphasis is on size. Unlike uh, correctly translated in the ESV, where the emphasis is on starting small but ending big. A correct translation focuses the text in two in an entirely different direction. The text is not talking about size. It's talking about the process of going from being very small to being very big. On two occasions, the mustard seed simile the Lord did use to explain the kind of faith believers should have. He used it in Luke chapter 17, verse 5 through 6. And of course, he uses it in Matthew chapter 17, verse 20, our text under consideration. I want to look at these two examples because the mustard seed simile that the Lord uses, uh, I think, gives us a better grasp of what he intended. Notice in Luke chapter 17, verse 1 to 10, we have the apostles requesting increased faith from the Lord Jesus. But notice the context. Luke chapter 17, verse 1 begins, Jesus said to his disciples, stumbling blocks are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. I want to stop because I want to make a point here about this uh, word stumbling block come from the Greek word skandalon. Of course, we get our word scandal from this Greek word. But originally, this Greek word skandalon meant a trap. It probably refers to the kind of trap which has a stick, which when touched by an animal causes the trap to shut, and thus you catch the prey. Now, this word here has the idea of putting a stumbling block or a trap or putting something in the way of the walker so that he will fumble and fall. Jesus said to his disciples, stumbling blocks are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him to have a millstone tied around his neck 
and be thrown into the sea than for him to cause one of these little ones to sin. That's a very stern, uh, sober statement that the Lord makes to his disciples. Here is a picture of a millstone. The millstone was actually used to grind down corn or wheat and to powder or flour. Jesus says, this millstone would be tied around your neck and you would be thrown into the sea, which of course you would drown, and there would be no way for you to swim or to survive with such a heavy weight on you. He said, that would be better. Therefore, he says, watch yourself or pay attention to yourself is the way it's translated in some other versions. Uh, you know, get a grip on yourself. If your brother sins, you ought to rebuke him. If he repents, you ought to forgive him, even if he sins against you seven times in a day. And seven times returns to you saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Now, this is a very sober and a very stark uh, story that the Lord tells here. And immediately, all of us deep inside sense conflict. You mean if someone sins against you seven times in one day, but after each time comes and asks for your forgiveness, you ought to forgive that person. Now, on his face, that. That sounds very difficult. It, would sound, it sounds difficult to us today, and it sounded very difficult to the disciples. Now, I want you to notice the response. In chapter 17, verse 5, Luke writes, And the apostles said to the Lord. Now, I find it interesting that Luke changes from disciple to apostle here. Now, of course, Luke is writing about 25 years after this event. When, in fact, the 12 were now called apostles. And so he, he, he calls them apostles. But notice what the apostles said to the Lord in response to his statement that they were to forgive someone who sinned against them seven times in one day. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. Now, this is very interesting here because what he says is, Increase from the Greek word prostitemi. Prostitemi means to add to an existing quantity. In fact, this word is used 18 times in the New Testament. And it suggests that the disciples are acknowledging that they have some faith, but they don't have enough to deal with a person. Uh, who would require the forgiveness of seven acts against a person. So now just think about it. You're standing in line at the grocery store, and there's a person, there's a child behind you playing with the buggy. And he, he hits you uh, in the back of the leg as you are standing there waiting to be checked out. And he does it the first time. You look back and you notice it's a child and you don't say anything. But then he does it again and again and again. And now you're getting mad. And you're wondering why this child uh, doesn't stop playing with this buggy. And as his parent uh, standing there, she keeps saying, oh, I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. But uh, by the sixth or seventh time that the child has done this, I'm sure that you, like so many, would not be too generous 
or nice about it. Jesus is saying that if someone sins against you seven times and each time they ask your forgiveness and repent, that you ought to forgive them. And the disciples had a problem with that and recognized immediately that they did not have faith sufficient to deal with that type of situation in such a positive way as the Lord had indicated. And I dare say that most people would agree with the disciples. But I want you to notice the Lord's response. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. So here he uses the mustard seed illustration simile the second time. In the Greek, it says, if you all have faith. Notice that this time, the word E uh, looked like a backwards E and the letter I pronounced E ekete. Now this time it's a first class condition. Now last time or in Matthew chapter 17 verse 20, the Lord Jesus used a third class condition saying that it is possible. But here this is a first class condition. Now, some of you probably have heard some preacher get up and say that first-class condition in Greek means that the statement is true. And, of course, that is a rather gross oversimplification because that's really not what, how the first-class condition actually works. What the author is actually saying is if, for the sake of argument, or if you will grant me this, then let me make this argument. If for the sake of argument you have, you all have faith as or like a seed of mustard, then this would be the result. It doesn't mean that you have it. It simply says that if for the sake of argument you do, then this is what the outcome would, will be. You may have it and you may not, as we saw back in 1720 of Matthew. But if you'd have it, then this is exactly what will happen as a result. Now, this is very important because the Lord goes on to say, would any one of you say to your slave who comes in from the field after plowing or shepherding sheep, come at once and sit down for a meal? Wouldn't the master instead say to him, get my dinner ready, make yourself ready to serve me while I eat and drink, then afterward you may eat and drink yourself. He wouldn't thank the slave because he did what he was told, will he? So you too, Jesus writes in 1720 of Luke, when you have done everything you were commanded to do and say, should say we are slaves undeserving of special praise. We've only done what was our duty. Now, what is the Lord Jesus saying here? He says obedience is a duty. It's not a privilege. You don't, you don't have an option to obey. You simply obey. You don't need faith to obey if you are, in, in fact, obedient, a slave obeys, and he doesn't expect a thank you. 
And Jesus says, if you are obeying, if you obey God and do as you are told or commanded, then there's no praise. You do not do praise and you shouldn't expect any because you've only done what was expected of you. So he does not respond to their request for faith with a statement of teaching about faith, rather. He makes the statement that if you had the kind of faith that is worth having, then it would not be an issue for you. But obedience uh, to the commands of God is not a faith issue. It's an obedient one. If you are obedient, then you will do what you are told. Now, this is very interesting because ultimately what he teaches us is that faith works according to its development Faith must be built. It starts small, but it ends big. This is the point that Jesus made in Matthew chapter 17, verse 20. And it's also the point he makes here in Luke chapter 17, verse 5 and 6. The kind of faith that can actually move a mountain it is potentially possible, and if you argue it for the sake of argument, then the outcome is certain. You can say to the mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. The kind of faith that makes that possible is a developed faith. And that's really what we're talking about in Faith for the Final. We're talking about developing a faith, developing your faith so that you can operate at a certain level in terms of your relationship to God. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I must say to you, and I say it with, with great sadness, that 99% of the church is in fact consists of people with little faith, a little faith. They are not people who have developed their faith muscle, as it were. They have not developed the kind of faith necessary for them to be able to achieve the setting aside of natural law. And there are reasons for it. One, of course, is that people haven't been taught uh, and certainly few have studied the topic to any great length. And the consequence is that most Christians sit around, just like Jesus' disciples, with very little, a very little faith. The best illustration that I've been able to come up with for faith is the pyramid, an inverted pyramid. It stands on a point, and most people would say that that is impossible. A pyramid cannot stand on its point. Pyramids stand on the base. But if you invert a pyramid with the point being its contact, then it is impossible for it to stand up by itself. And yet this is exactly, in my opinion, 
the best illustration of what biblical faith is, that is, faith like a seed of mustard. It must develop. It must grow. It compounds upon itself. The point here is, ladies and gentlemen, that if you have not aggressively tried to grow your faith, that is, to develop your faith, that is, if you have not allowed your faith to take the course as a mustard seed takes, then you have remained in a state of little faith. You operate purely at a human level with very little conviction that Almighty God is going to do anything of significant power towards what is done by grace through faith. We are going to look at this one act of faith and one act of seeing a move of God should be the springboard from which you begin to build a great faith. We're going to talk about it, we're going to examine it, and we're going to look at the disciples, and we're going to see specifically the events in their lives that the Lord Jesus intended to be the catalyst for them to develop a great faith. Of course, they failed miserably uh, in their effort, but we will speak of this in great length. Faith for the final, surviving the coming days. The next time in part six, we're going to take a detailed look at what Jesus expected his disciples 